Well, thank you so much, Raymond, and just for the lovely staff and team here at Christ Church Westchester for hosting this evening. Uh, hopefully, you do have the handout. The handout will just help us navigate our way through this evening. Um, I don't know about you, but I always like to know what am I getting into with a talk like this. So let me give you a little bit of a roadmap to help uh, orient how we'll divide our time up. You can kind of envision our time together tonight divided alongside uh, three broader headings. So uh, we'll discuss the current landscape of friendship, really essentially setting the stage uh, for the problem of friendship. And the reason why we'll start with the problem first is if we don't understand the gravity and the magnitude of the problem we're facing, then we'll typically uh, fall very fall short uh, when it comes to the solutions. Uh, secondly, because we often do culturally misdiagnose the problem, we also oftentimes then come to the wrong solutions. And so in the second and third of our talk, we'll talk about different ways culturally that we tend to solve the problem of friendship, all of which end up to some degree or another uh, falling less than short of what Scripture, I think, paints for us in a broad picture. Uh, the final third of our talk is we'll really go back to Scripture and we'll begin to open up Scripture together to say, listen, is there, is there a cohesive storyline of friendship that we can trace from beginning to end uh, that can help orient our gaze a little bit? And then, Lord willing, uh, as Raymond's already mentioned, we can dedicate the balance of our time to question and answer. So let's dive in. Let's talk about the current landscape of friendship. Uh, I don't think it would surprise anyone here this evening that, uh, as Raymond has already mentioned, that we are experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. We are experiencing a significant uh, breakdown when it comes to friendship. And while statistics aren't always helpful, right, there's a statistic for everything, I think oftentimes a few helpful statistics can at least orient ourselves by way of just how massive this problem is that we're facing. Uh, studies show that loneliness is becoming an increasingly uh, prevalent experience for many people in our culture. According to a recent survey in 2019, 25% of all adults uh, ages 18 through 27 reported having no close friends, and 22% reported having no friends at all. So you take both of those numbers together, roughly 50% of people 18 through 27 uh, would say they have no friends or no close friends at all. Uh, earlier this afternoon, I was spending some time with your interns, with the interns and pastoral residents and assistants and some other members, and was trying to get a little bit of a feel generationally uh, of where they were at, because there is one particular generation that really is not doing well in friendship, uh, and that's millennials. How many millennials are in here? If you're, if you're roughly 1981 to 1996, raise your hand. Okay. Out of all the different generations, it seems millennials are not faring well when it comes to uh, friendships. They report their highest rates of loneliness, of not having friends. Uh, do I have any Gen Xers or baby boomers? That would be 1946 up through 1980. Where's all my Gen Xers? Okay, there's a few. There's a handful. You guys typically score the best when it comes to friendships. Uh, <laughs> yes, everybody, round of applause. Round of applause for baby boomers and Gen Xers. Uh, but I will tell you this, you also are the worst at passing on patterns of friendships. So what has happened with millennials is that, <laughs> is that apparently Gen Xers and baby boomers, again, for a variety of different reasons, going through the Depression, going through world wars, etc., formed very, very strong relationships, but didn't find a mechanism to be able to pass on those patterns to millennials. Uh, where's all of our Gen Z friends, 1997 to 2012? Okay, it's almost like weighted on the room. It's like over here we got the young people and 
older people over here. I think the stats are still out there on Gen Z, but there are also uh, not so good statistics as it relates to increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. Uh, millennials and Gen Zers in particular are more likely than their older generations to report having no acquaintances, no friends, no close friends, no best friends. Uh, in 1985, uh, there was a report, a survey that was given, and on the survey, people were asked to respond, uh, how many people over the last six months did you share something in your life uh, that was important to you? Did you share a, a thing of importance with them? And in 1985, the most common number was three. Over the last six months, I shared at least something important in my life with three people. Uh, in 2014, that number had dropped down to zero. The number dropped down to zero. Over the last six months, have you shared something important in your life uh, with anyone, with a friend, a close friend? That number went to zero. The effects on our health are also similarly discouraging. So not only sociologically is it impacting our relationships, but it's also impacting our health. Uh, one report says that having few friends is the equivalent health risk of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This morning I Googled because I didn't know how many cigarettes make up a pack because I'm not a smoker. Uh, but there's 20 cigarettes in a pack. So that's basically like smoking three quarters of a pack of cigarettes every single day. Uh, we're told that loneliness increases the risk of death as much as being 100 pounds overweight. So you can imagine being 100 pounds overweight, the health uh, risk associated with that is similar to not having friends, to being lonely. Additionally, we can tie loneliness and not having friends to a whole host of other physical problems. Alcohol and drug misuse, altered brain functioning, uh, disease progression as it relates to Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease and stroke, decreased memory and learning, increased rates of depression and suicide, increased stress levels, poor decision-making, in fact, a, a news story that I read just two days ago said that the most common words in suicide notes left by men, two words, worthless and lonely, worthless and lonely. Additionally, this trend is not similar or not unique only to the U.S., but this is something that we're finding across cultures. In 2018, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May created an entire government department, a cabinet-level post, called the Minister for Loneliness, whose sole job is to address the societal uh, effects of loneliness. 14% uh, of the UK's population reported feeling lonely, costing employers roughly $5 billion a year in lost revenue and productivity. Uh, Japanese people in particular, there's an entire subcategory of people in Japan who are completely removing themselves from society. They're called the hakikimori. Uh, Kiki Mori are adolescents and young adults who become recluses in their parents' home. They're unable to leave the house. They're unable to engage in any kind of social behavior, withdrawing from school and from social life. So when you look at it, and when you look at the broad picture, friends, it would be an understatement to say we are experiencing in so many ways a crisis of friendship. Historically speaking, though, that was not always the case. Uh, from antiquity, uh, moving up into the classical era, friendship was a highly valued and important relationship. And in fact, many people would have said that friendship was more important than even marriage. Friendship was the most valued relationship. Augustine famously told us that there were two things that were essential in this world. He said healthy life and a friendship. 
Uh, Aristotle described friendship as one soul as abiding in two bodies. And you can think of great friendships uh, being heralded and written about throughout history. So Patroclus and Achilles or Goethe and Schiller or Byron and Shelley and so on. And then also even biblically, right? We think about the friendships between Jonathan and David or Ruth and Naomi or Paul and Timothy. Uh, marriage, which is probably a relationship that is held in high esteem today in the church historically, had been, I would say, especially during the Middle Ages and medieval times, as a fairly utilitarian, economic-based relationship. If you had asked what relationship is most associated with love and feelings of affection, people probably would have responded friendship and not marriage. Oftentimes, you didn't marry somebody that you loved. You didn't even maybe marry somebody who was your friend. You married them because of politics. You married them because of economics. You married them to continue on a family line. The relationship that was most associated with love and virtues and, and, and affection was the uh, relationship of friendship. So what happened? Like, where did things begin to go wrong? I think that one of the things that we begin to see is that when we conceptualize a friendship, culturally speaking, the way that most of us typically think about friendship now is that it is a relationship that is primarily oriented around who? It's around me. It's about someone meeting my desires, meeting my needs, uh, somebody that can come into my life and either help alleviate burdens, bear burdens, run errands with me, babysit my kids. Basically, it's somebody who is supposed to help me become the best me possible. Friendship is very much a relationship that is all about me and not about the wider good of our community. And because of that, and because of the loneliness that we're facing, we tend to gravitate towards what I would call these relational substitutes, these these friendship light solutions to give us what we think we want, but in reality, oftentimes, they leave us wanting more. And so I'll identify three different kind of friendship substitutes uh, that we very commonly go after. And they're ones that I would say I've engaged in. There's probably some that you've engaged in as well. And we'll talk about how they're meant to fill the gap, but that always leave us uh, wanting more. The first friendship substitute that oftentimes gets talked about today is just the social media friendship or the social mediated friendship. For many of us today, the worlds of social media have had an immense and an over-inflated influence uh, on our lives, not the least of which is how we view friendship. Uh, for all of the conveniences and the advances in technology which promise and which purport to connect us, it's odd, right, that our experiences of loneliness and depression and anxiety are at all-time highs. 99.2% of every American has access to high-speed internet. 85% of Americans actually have high-speed internet in their home. 91% of people uh, said that they would rather go without their car and would rather go without deodorant more so than their own phone. 91% giving up their car, giving up their deodorant, I can't live without my phone. 85% of every U.S. household has at least one smartphone in it. And so with statistics like that, with access like that, why are we still so incredibly disconnected? Um, apps like Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, all of which promise to connect us and to actually make relationships easier have actually complicated and clouded the problem for us. The promises that Facebook and other sites make to us that you can be connected to everyone and be friends with everyone actually leaves us, I think, oftentimes more disenchanted and more depressed. 
Sherry Turkle, who's an MIT sociologist, writes this. She says, in the silence of connection, people are comforted by being in touch with a lot of people. But people carefully kept at bay. We can't get enough of one another if we can use technology to keep one another at distances that we can control. Not too close, not too far, just right. And I think this really begins to get at the core of one of the problems that we struggle with in our friendships, and that is our desire for control. Uh, we want friendships that are on our timetable. Uh, we want friendships that are on our terms of agreement. We want friendships that are weekdays, five to six, no weekends, no major holidays, no major inconveniences. Uh, we want friendships that are on our own agreements. Any type of inconvenience, any type of awkwardness, any type of sacrifice, we don't want those kind of friendships. Those seem burdensome. Those seem toxic. Those seem like they're a little bit too much. And so what social media allows for us to do is it allows us to both control how much interaction we can have with other people, but it also allows us to curate what aspects of our life we choose to share with other people. Uh, so when we think about the images that we share, the experiences that we talk about, the statuses that we post, we get to choose the best ofs. We get to choose the high mountaintop moments. We get to choose the things that are very much curated to create a certain narrative about our life. Other people are noticing the effects of this on their friendships as well. One journalist, Nicholas Tufnell, writes this. He says, on a slightly deeper note, he says, there's something about the relentless happiness of people on Facebook that I find monstrous. Everyone is apparently always somewhere better than I am, and what's more, they're always having a brilliant time. He says, my life is not like that. And in reality, no one's life is like that. These are, of course, constructed narratives. These are our best ofs. But sometimes it's hard to reason to yourself that these people aren't having fun all the time when all you ever see of them is pictures of them having fun all of the time. I suddenly start to feel pangs of inadequacy and jealousy. And these people are supposed to be my friends, right? Tufnell, I think, succeeds in exposing... Uh, one of the many lies that social media puts out to us, and that is that, again, while they promise connection and friendship, more often than not, what these sites tend to produce and play on is the exact opposite, and yet we continue to invest inordinate amounts of time into them. American novelist Jonathan Foer writes this. He's talking about uh, just technologies, modern communication technologies, and how when these modern communication technologies first came onto the scene, they were never meant to replace relationships or friendships, but just help aid them, make them a little bit easier. So uh, Foer talks about the Pony Express, uh, the telegraph, the telephone, answering machines, and so on. And he says most of our communication technologies just began as diminished substitutes for an impossible activity. He says we couldn't always see one another face-to-face, -face, so the telephone made it possible to keep in touch at a distance. These inventions were not created to be improvements on face-to-face -face communication, but a substitute for it. He goes on to write, he says, but then a funny thing happened. He said, we actually began to prefer these diminished substitutes. It's a whole lot easier to make a phone call than to schlep over to see someone in person. And leaving a message on someone's machine is easier than having a phone conversation. Now, you can tell this quote from Foer is outdated because how many of you have answering machines? 
right? We don't even have answering machines. He says, you can say what you need to say without a response. Hard news is easier to leave. It's easier to check in without becoming entangled. So we began calling when we knew no one would pick up. He says, man, shooting off an email, it's even easier still because one can hide behind the absence of vocal inflection. And of course, there's no chance of accidentally catching someone. And texting, it's even easier as the expectation for articulateness is further reduced and another shell is offered to hide in. Every step forward has made it easier just a little to avoid the emotional work of being present, to convey information rather than humanity. And here's the kicker, forward notes. He says the problem with accepting and with actually preferring diminished substitutes is that over time, we too become diminished substitutes. People who become used to saying little become used to feeling little. Right? And I think in so many ways, friends, this is the tragic but inevitable end. Right? The promise that social media holds out to us ends up being a mirage and a fragment. And what we're actually left with is a lot of brokenness, a lot of heartache, and a lot of suffering. Like all of our idols, right? They make huge promises to us but they always underdeliver when it comes to result. Now, please hear me rightly. I'm not wanting anyone to go out and leave here this evening and deactivate your ex account or your Facebook or your Instagram because, again, at the end of the day, the social media app is not the problem. It's how your heart engages those different apps and how it engages them and engages friendships. So that's the first friendship substitute, or the first problem, or the first solution, rather, I think that culturally we use to, uh, to bring about some type of positive counterpoint to this epidemic of loneliness. Uh, the second one is one that probably, at least within a church context, fits a little bit better, and that's what I call the specialized friendship. If the social media friendship is willing to sacrifice intimacy and vulnerability for the illusion of companionship, then in the specialized friendship, we're content to just reduce it down to a common activity or interest. So we have a high capacity to compartmentalize not only our own life, but also our friendships. And I typically see people's friendships break down into one of these two specialized categories, the first of which is the stage of life friendship. And then the second one would be the common interest friendship. So in the stage of life friendship, you just simply surround yourself with people who are at a similar point in life as you are at. So there's young moms or single moms, stay-at-home moms, working moms, older moms, young dads, stay-at-home dads, empty nesters, senior saints, prime timers, sojourners, whatever church name you want to call different age groups of people, right? Everyone knows their stage. You rarely venture out of it because... It's just easier. You get me. That's a, a common theme that I'll have people tell me. It's just hard to, to span another stage of life because they don't get where I'm at. And what do you hear in that inherently, right? Again, what is friendship about? It's about me. It's about my needs and my interests. And therefore, I need a friend who really, truly gets me. Now, hear me rightly again. I'm not saying that that is not a part of friendship, but what we have to begin to ask ourselves is, is that the primary goal of friendship? In many ways, I think the church in some ways can mirror this reality, right? We love to divide up into different groups, singles group, a college and career group, young marrieds, older marrieds, empty nesters, senior saints, and so on, because we tend to be so adept at organizing ourselves into categories of convenience that we oftentimes, I think, miss wonderful opportunities for biblical friendships that can span any stage of life. 
So essentially what happens in the stage of life or in the common interest category is what becomes most important, what actually binds us together is not Christ, but it's an interest and it's a stage of life. And when we look biblically in particular at certain friendships, what we realize is that common interest or stage of life does not seem to be the dominant thing that draws people together. Right? Think about Ruth and Naomi. Right? You've got two people who are at completely different stages of life. Right? You have an older woman with a younger widow. Right? It's, it, there's, there's nothing on paper, as it were, that would say, yeah, these two people, man, they're a match made in heaven. Right? These two people, they're going to be best friends. And yet, in Ruth 1, where you hear this covenanting of friendship, Ruth to Naomi, listen, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. That, that type of deep-seated commitment in a friendship, right, happening with an older woman and a younger woman. Again, I'm not saying that those types of friendships that are similar or centered on a stage of life are false or fake, but do we want to make that the only thing that we pursue when we're pursuing friends? Meaning, are we only going to pursue people that are in our stage of life? Or think about common interests, right? If common interests are the only thing that bond us together, think about another famous friendship in Scripture. Think about Jonathan and David. What were their common interests? What were their common backgrounds, right? Did they come from the same social economic class, right? Did they have similar hobbies? I think when you look at them biblically, you'd say, no, these are two people who, again, on paper shouldn't be friends. You've got a shepherd boy who's, you know, from the backwoods of Israel, and you have somebody who's a prince who would have had the best education, the the best things available to them, and yet there's a covenanting there in friendship that happens regardless of a shared background or shared common interest, right? What seems to bind the two of them together is something that is greater than themselves. So in friendships where we make the entry point based on expertise or knowledge or competence or uh, whatever it might be, oftentimes I think we can exclude and disqualify wonderful candidates for friends simply because they don't share a common interest with us or because they don't share our stage of life, uh, right? We've, we joked, I think, both, uh, both with the interns and with Raymond about myself and as a guy, uh, one major connecting area that I never have in common with other guys is sports. I've never played a sport. I have zero interest in sports, and I know nothing about sports, right? And so, <laughs> oh, good, there's a friend. There's a friend, Right? But you can imagine, right? You can imagine as, as a guy in the Midwest where sports is everything, right? People know every Browns roster, the batting average for the Indians. They know every stat there is to know about a player, right? If, if I only make my level of entry for friendship of, well, do you share my interest? Do I share yours? Right? I would significantly cut off a, a huge percentage of people who I could enter into friendship with. And again, I'm not saying that common interests or stages of life can't be helpful context for friendship, but do those need to be the center? Do those need to be the foundations of our friendship? So the social media friendship, the specialized friendship, the third category that we oftentimes go to to meet our needs of loneliness in friendship is the selfish friendship. And the selfish friendship seeks friendship purely for what can be gained for them. Uh, what comes to mind here are friendships that are just initiated or cultivated or maintained for some perceived benefit that they can provide, right? I think about sometimes, you know, in the church, this might happen, right? Various pyramid schemes or 
multi-level marketing enterprises, right? Somebody reaches out to you like on Facebook or gives you a message, hey, we haven't talked in a long time. And maybe your, your hopes start to go up a little bit of, oh, it would be so good to connect with this person. And then next thing you know, oh, have I told you about this new product that I'm selling? Or have I told you about these essential oils or this new makeup or whatever product? I'm not anti-essential oils or multi-level marketing, but do we pursue friendships only for selfish gain? Do we pursue friendships only because they provide for us a context by which we can gain or better ourselves? Karina Kreminski writes this. She says, these days we talk more about, quote, building networks, developing relationships, or making connections. She says, we are busy, distracted, and we have limited space in our lives for the time that it takes to make a friend. And so we become focused, project-oriented, and solution-oriented. We want to make sure that we're always getting some kind of benefit or advantage from the people who we are connecting with. So what happens in a selfish friendship is I turn friendship into a commodity. The friend becomes a consumer, and interactions become transactions. What can I give you in exchange for something that I want? Can you make me more popular? Can you get me more friends? Will you help my standing in the church to go up a little bit more? Man, you're an elder in the church, so if I can kind of buddy up next to you, like that'll make me look a little bit better, right? If I, if I can come alongside you, then this might raise my standing or my opinion or esteem in the eyes of other people. A friend once confided into me in a counseling session. She said, man, I feel like all of my close friends, my quote-unquote best friend, she says, man, they always want something from me. It's always, it's always about something that I can do for them. I don't really feel like it's a friendship for the sake of a friendship. It's always because, hey, they need a babysitter, or they need someone to run this errand, or they, they need this or that. Henry Trumbull writes this. He says, friendship is to be valued for what there is in it, not for what can be gotten out of it. When two people appreciate each other because each has found the other convenient to have around, they are not friends They are simple acquaintances with a business understanding. To seek friendship for its utility is as futile as to seek the end of a rainbow for its bag of gold. And so in summary, right, these three friendship substitutes, these ways that culture says, hey, go after friendships, organize your friendships like this, have friendships like this, or pursue a friendship for this, all of them leave us with the realization, I think, at the end of the day, that we were built for something more. Right? We have this loneliness problem. We're in this epidemic. But we know then that all of these things only begin to touch at the water's edge of the real problem. Because we don't know and we don't understand the real purpose of friendship, we just use friendships in whatever way it feels best for us. Uh, many of you probably have you know, watched a lot of Disney movies in your time, especially if you've had kids. My girls loved watching Little Mermaid. They loved the uh, new live action one that came out. There's a, you know, famous scene in Little Mermaid, right? Ariel comes to the surface. She's collected all of these forks, and she asks Scuttle, the seagull, who's this paragon of authority on all things human. She, she asks Scuttle, she says, hey, what are these things? And Scuttle says quite convincingly, he says, oh, I know exactly what those are for. Those are dingle hoppers. And uh, the humans, the humans use those to brush their hair, to which Ariel is so excited to have this knowledge and goes back down to her cave of wonders, etc. Flash forward, right? She's at the big, big dinner with Prince Eric. 
and she sees a fork there right at the place setting. And we all remember she, she picks up the fork and she immediately starts to kind of brush her hair with the fork. And, and everybody at the table, all the humans at the table are kind of looking at her saying, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? That, that, that's a fork, right? The fork is not designed and doesn't serve the purpose of brushing one's hair, right? The purpose of that fork is to do what? To get food from the plate up to your mouth, right? And I know that. I know that from personal experience, right? Now, can a fork brush your hair? I can tell you again from personal experience having four girls, you can. You can use a, you can use a fork to brush your hair. But as we know, any evaluation of the usefulness of a product has to first ask the question, is it fulfilling the purpose for which it was intended? Not just the utility of, yeah, it works. That's pragmatism. So can a fork brush your hair? Sure. Can a friendship meet your needs? Sure. But we need to be asking ourselves, friends, tonight a better question. What is friendship actually designed for? What is it made for? Is friendship just to mitigate loneliness? Is friendship just about meeting your needs? Is friendship just about having a buddy? Is friendship just about having another set of hands to do a task that you don't want to do? Maybe, but is there something deeper than that? And that's what I would say in the final third of what we want to talk about tonight. I think that there is a story. There is a story of friendship that actually gives us a beginning, a middle, and an end for what friendship is really about. So, again, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, uh, let's turn over to Genesis 126. You're smart, sensible, well-taught people. This won't surprise you, this storyline that we're going to begin to unfold from creation to fall to redemption to consummation. But in Genesis 126, we're told, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In Genesis, we learn that God created and designed us to be image bearers of God. And we ask, what does that mean? What's the impact of that on our understanding of friendships and relationships? Mark Cortez writes this. He says, the image of God is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. Right. We know that image-bearer language was used by ancient Near Eastern writers to describe this dynamic where when people would travel into different foreign lands, that one of the ways that you would know that you've gone from a different ruler's land to another ruler's land is that the ruler of that land, the king of that land, the, the prince of that land would imprint his image on currency, on stones, on buildings, so that when you entered into that land, you would be able to say, okay, this person reigns here. This person whose image I see is telling me, okay, uh, this king rules here. And similarly then, human beings were designed to be God's image bearers. That when people bumped up into one another, there was this realization that God rules and reigns here. As God himself exists in eternal community and friendship, alongside the other members of the Trinity, we too enjoy that reality Pastor and author J.D. Greer writes this. He says, Every other relationship that we experience had a genesis. Marriage was created. The parent-child relationship, created. Work relationships, created. But friendship was never created. It's part of the eternal nature of God. Ponder that until your brain hurts. There has never been a time where there was not friendship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, for all of eternity have enjoyed perfect, 
intra-Trinitarian friendship and relationship. And part of our privilege then as image bearers is that we bear testimony to that eternal relationship. Right, it makes sense then as you move forward in Genesis 2.18, your eye can glance down there where it says the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And the, 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 the profound nature of that statement, I think so quickly, because of familiarity, uh, we tend to pass over that this longing and this ache for friends and community is an ache which started with Adam. Greer continues to write, he says, Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was actually lonely because he was perfect. Every other problem in our lives arises out of our sin and our imperfections, but loneliness is the one problem that we have because we are made in God's image. Right? When you read Genesis 2.18, I oftentimes find both in conversations and in preaching and teaching that we immediately move towards the marriage interpretation of Genesis 2.18. Right? It's kind of like, well, yeah, Adam, man, he had a lot of stuff to do in the garden. He kind of needed like a, another domestic helpmate to kind of help him like evenly divide the duties. I mean, that's a lot of animals to name, right? So, gosh, it would just be really nice if God provided like a helpmate for him. And we tend to think of helper in terms of just division of domestic duties in the garden. But is that really what it's about? Is that verse primarily teaching us about marriage? Jesus wasn't married, and he's the perfect image bearer. He's the friend of friends. So there's got to be something a little bit deeper here, right? I think the Genesis account and the creation of Eve is telling us that the fact that you are made in God's image means that you necessarily need another person in your life with whom you can fully image God, right? Eve is a helpmate to Adam at the purest level in the sense of Adam on his own cannot be an image bearer of a triune God. He can't bear testimony to the intra-Trinitarian friendship that has been enjoyed for all of eternity unless he has another human being to do that with. That's the way that Eve is a helper to Adam, right? We know that helper doesn't connote a less than subservient status, right? Because 16 out of the 19 times that helper is used in Genesis, you know who it refers to? It refers to God. It refers to God being our helper, so when we look at this creation account of Adam and Eve, what we see, I think, at the top level in terms of application is that Adam and Eve were made to exist in friendship, a friendship that would image the friendship that is enjoyed between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And friends, that then, I think, even from the very beginning, what you see is such a, such a robust counterweight to the flimsy and fake relationships and friendships that we tend to traffic in. Right, if we begin to realize the divine purpose that is written and embedded in friendships, right, it moves beyond just a his needs, her needs, or are you meeting what I need. Our friendships, if we go back to the beginning, our friendships are designed to testify to this most important reality of who we are and what we were created for. But we also know the friendships don't stay like that. Uh, so again, if your Bibles are open, you can turn over to Genesis 3. In verses 8 through 12, we see that friendships go bad. In verse 8, it's recorded, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Immediately we see in Genesis 3 that one of the first consequences of sin is that it breaks the friendship relationship which Adam and Eve had enjoyed with God. They hide from God. In verse 8, the author of Genesis includes this phrase where, where Adam and Eve are walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which was a, was a Hebrew idiom for friendship. What the author is connoting there to us is that at some point there was a regular practice where God would come into the garden every single day, and, and he would walk in friendship with Adam and Eve. There was a rhythm and a balance to their interactions. And one day, God comes for the morning friendship walk, And guess what? Adam and Eve don't show up. He says, where are you? Right? Where are you? Sin breaks that friendship and breaks that relationship. And this break in relationship then is something that I think we oftentimes miss. When we think about friendship and we think about the struggles that we face, we almost always conceptualize of them as being horizontal problems, right? Uh, you know, you're not being considerate enough of me, or, you know, you're not meeting my needs, or you should be more patient, or why don't you pursue me more? We rarely trace the true problem in our friendships back to the problem, which is our break in friendship with God, right? When you look at then how Scripture assesses and diagnoses the problem of friendship, the first friendship problem is not horizontal, it's actually vertical. It's the broken friendship that you and I experience because of sin that breaks the relationship between us and God. It does affect relationships horizontally, though, and we quickly see that in those verses, right? Adam and Eve, very soon after that, start pointing the finger at one another. They start blaming one another. Adam and Eve start to become kind of clothing designers. They start to form fig leaves to cover them. And when we look at that, I think what we begin to draw application from is that there's something about sin as it enters into relationships that actually keeps us from wanting to be truly known and seen, right? There's something about the beauty of Genesis 2 where at the end we're told that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, that in Genesis 3 we see they are naked and ashamed. And while you and I might not be putting fig leaves over us in our relationships, Are there other ways that you use fig leaves in friendships? Maybe you tend to move away from uncomfortable conversations when they begin to go more than an inch deep. Maybe you choose to put up walls or boundaries for fear of getting hurt. Uh, Maybe you offer up niceties in lieu of honesty when people ask what's going wrong. Maybe you gravitate towards artificial friendship substitutes because it's just frankly easier to be friends with someone online than to be friends with someone in reality. Maybe it's to walk away when someone difficult comes up, or maybe it's on a Sunday morning, you see that person that's all by themselves, and you just don't want to take the extra few minutes to walk over and talk to them because you know it's probably going to take a lot of your time and you want to get to lunch. Right? We all do different things in our sinful state that actually keep us from being truly known and truly knowing other people. And again, if we just chalk those differences up to, oh, personality, or, oh, I'm an INFJ, and that's just what we do, or I'm a nine on the Enneagram, we actually, I think, dismiss the reality and the depth of the problem of what friendship happens, of what goes wrong in our friendships. From the fall forward, from Genesis 3 forward, then loneliness 
and problems in relationship mark nearly every human interaction that we see in Scripture. From Genesis 3 onward, Scripture is a story, and it is a laundry list of broken relationships. You can't get from Genesis 3 to Genesis 50 without constant relational turmoil, people hurting one another, people sinning against one another, people abusing one another, people being lonely. Elijah experienced loneliness and isolation. In 1 Kings 19.10, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am the only person left, and they seek my life. David experienced loneliness. Psalm 25.16, he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Psalm 142.4, look to the right and see, there is no one who takes notice of me, no refuge remains to me, no one cares for my soul. There's something about that, right? Scripture is both timeless and timely, right? That, that verse from David in Psalm 142, that could, be, that could be just as timely today. Any one of you could say that. Look to the right, look to the left, no one takes notice of me, no refuge remains for me, No one cares for my soul. I have heard that time and time again in the counseling room. The Apostle Paul felt it in a keen way. 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, In my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And even Christ himself experiences the pain of loneliness. Matthew 27.46, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And speaking of Jesus, then, it won't surprise us that when we think about what then makes friendship better, what is the answer to friendship? Is it better social media apps? Is it better organization of how we do friendships? Is it, is it community groups? Is it Bible study groups? Is it stage of life groups? What, what really is going to make friendships better? And we know the answer. It's Christ. Christ is the one who's going to truly redeem and make friendships better. So how does he do it? And, you know, Jesus today I don't think would sell any books on how to make friends and influence people because the way that he does it is so counterintuitive. As he does so often, he takes the wisdom of the world, he turns it upside down. Listen to what he says in John 15 about, listen, here's how you win friends. Here's how you influence people. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than what? Then someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you what? I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus Christ redeems friendship and makes friendship whole again through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is through his substitutionary atoning work on the cross that our deepest, most important friendship relationship is healed, and that is our relationship with God. Our relationship with God, which is broken by sin, is redeemed and restored because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us, right? That's what makes friendship work. If we are going to then embody and model and exemplify the kind of love the Father shows to us in Christ, then the core of what should mark our friendships is self-sacrifice. 
is a desire to seek the good of the other. You might say, well, that does seem so countercultural to how the world sells friendship to us, right? Because it is, right? Modern friendship is primarily based on what you do for me, how you make me a better person, about how you meet my needs. But listen to the type of friend that Jesus pursues in us. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul writes, he says, For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Later on, Paul goes, he says, For while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Right? Just in that short set of verses, here's what Paul says about us. This is how Christ saw you. You were weak, you were ungodly, you were a sinner, and you were an enemy. Right? This is our pre-friend state. Does that sound like an ideal friend to you? Does that sound like a friend that you want to pursue? Right? That's not going to make the top five characteristics of BFF material. Friend is, uh, you know, you're a sinner, you're weak, you're ungodly, and you're an enemy. And yet there's something about the pursuing love of Christ. He has a particular affection for those kinds of people. And he says, listen, my life for your life. Jesus Christ, our true friend, befriends us and brings us into the right relationship with the Father and then enables us and models and empowers us to go out and do the same. I love how David speaks about this in Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, 4 through 6, David says, Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. God sets the lonely in families. What a beautiful and a compassionate thing God has done for us in Christ. He sets all of us who at our very core because of sin are isolated, broken in relationship. And he says, you know what? I'm going to put you into a family. I'm going to put you into a family where you have brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? What a relief then, friends, for all of us tonight that our friendships don't have to merely be with people who share your interests or have your own same hobbies or live in the same geographical area or who share the same interests or degrees or sports affiliations. But friendship, first and foremost, can begin as we are brought into friendship with the Father through Christ. It is as is, it is as if C.S. Lewis puts it, it's as if the great friend himself, Jesus, says, you have not chosen one another but I have chosen you for one another. You have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another, right? Christ must be the center of all of our friendships. Augustine in Confessions writes, he says, there can be no true friendship unless those who cling to each other are welded together by you, speaking of God, in the love that is spread throughout our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. All read of Rivlow, who wrote one of the earliest treatises on friendship, writes this. He says, In friendship are joined honor and charm, truth and joy, sweetness and goodwill, affection and action. And all these take their beginning from Christ, advance through Christ, and are perfected in Christ. Well, the story might end there, but 
If you're a millennial, you know the wonderful hit song from Michael W. Smith that indeed friends are friends forever. And that is, that is the trajectory I think that we see. It's not just a popular song uh, that we know and sing, but it represents the truthfulness, I think, of the storyline of Scripture. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, John records for us, he says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, are crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is the eschatological vision that we are headed towards. All of God's redeemed, all of God's family, the friends, the brothers and sisters that we are surrounded with tonight, perfectly worshiping God for all of eternity. So even for myself as a self-confessed introvert, right, I have to realize that the trajectory of where we are headed is me being surrounded with brothers and sisters in Christ worshiping God forever. Some of you here might say, well, I like to be a loner. I don't really like people. They're kind of inconvenient or a burden. Well, you're probably going to hate heaven then. Because in heaven, it's people. It's friends. It's friends 24-7, minus the burdens, minus the needs. But you're not going to be by yourself. You're not just going to be introverted alone. You will be with your brothers and sisters in Christ, celebrating friendship forever. And friends, this is the vision then that the Lord offers to you and I in our friendships here on earth to testify about. Karina Kraminski writes this, and we'll close with this. She says, our privilege of being friends with God then is a model for our engagement with the world, and it is our witness so that others might practice friendship. She says, practicing friendship has oftentimes been relegated to the sphere of children, women, and the sentimental. However, it is something that we can all try as a subversive practice that can change our world. As we make friends, we trust that our friend Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, is with us, helping us in our participation with him on his mission to mend all things broken and decaying in our world. And friends, I think that in the culture that we live in today, Engaging and living out biblical friendships will be one of the most ordinary, but also one of the most radical and subversive things that we will do in our culture. From how we center friendship on Christ to the ultimate trajectory of friendship pointing to an eternity of worship of Christ with our friends in Christ is a radical, radical reorientation to the world's version of friendship, which frankly pales in comparison And so, friends, I think that the vision of friendship that we see from Scripture allows and really provides the church for one of the most evangelistic opportunities to an unbelieving, lonely world, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if the friendships that are represented here at Christ Church and all of the different churches that were mentioned here tonight, wouldn't it be so amazing if people began to say, there's there's something different about the people who go to that church, There's something different about the friendships of the people that go to that church. There are friendships that seemingly transcend stage of life, common interest, shared hobbies. There seems to be something about the friends and the people of that church. They show up. They freely give them themselves. They are there in difficult times, in hard times, without asking for anything in return. There's 
there's something there. Could you, could you tell me more about that? Could you tell me about what you have? Because I look at my friendships and there are none. Tell me more about this friendship. And friends, I think when we think about evangelism, when we think about the missional impact of the church, one of the most ordinary ways that will impact the culture around us is by simply engaging in these kind of friendships. That there will be an aroma of Christ that comes off of our friendships that will be an undeniable act of testimony and witness to a lonely, depressed, anxious, isolated world that will hopefully entreat people to say, tell me more about that. What's going on at that church? And I hope and pray that in some ways, some of the things that we talked about tonight, and maybe some of the things that you might find helpful in the book will help you towards those friendships. So let me just close us with a brief prayer, and then uh, we'll move into uh, a time of Q&A. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this vision of friendship. Lord, there's something about Scripture that on every topic radically reorients our gaze, and it doesn't surprise us then that your Word does that, even on a relationship like friendship. It clarifies our purpose. It tells us what's gone wrong. It gives us the solution to what makes it better, and it gives us a trajectory for the future. Lord, I pray for people here tonight who would come. They're here with people, but who might say, I'm really lonely. Lord, would you strengthen them for the journey of friendship? Lord, would you bring people alongside them that would minister and who would come alongside and want to enter into the journey of friendship with them? Lord, for those who have been disappointed or hurt by friends, Lord, I pray that they would turn and look to you, the friend of sinners, the, the friend of friends who is always there in good in bad times. Lord, I pray for, for those who are perhaps thinking for the first time, I, I want to step out in friendship. Lord, would you give them courage and give them faith as they do that? And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, we're going to move two microphones out to the side. So if you have a question in the moment, you can just go ahead and move uh, to a microphone, and we're going to ask you to state your name uh, and then ask a question. Uh, so that way we have opportunity to move through as many questions as, as possible. I think that they just want, well, that's fine. There, you can put it there. Um, I'm going to lead out with a few questions, Great. Jonathan, as people are moving. So if you have your question, go ahead and move here. Uh, how can men befriend women that they're not romantically engaged with or married to and vice versa? How can women befriend men who they're not yeah. romantically engaged yeah. with and they're uh, yeah. married? Here's a great, the simple answer to that question is that, I think, is the beauty of the church, that the church provides a context for same-gendered friendships that can provide a community of both accountability, discernment, and wise counsel. Uh, here's another way to come at that question. When you look at the sociological research out there on uh, why are we so lonely and why don't we have better friends, uh, researchers say, well, man, we just need a venue where people could come and be themselves, where they could have unplanned interactions on a consistent basis, where they could not be judged but be accepted and be heard, and where those relationships wouldn't cost them anything. You wouldn't have to pay a fee for it. And what you begin to read is what they are describing is a church. They're describing a community of people where you have repeated organic interactions. You have regular gatherings where people of all ages, all demographics, can gather, right? What they want is a church. And the church can say, well, hey, we're here. We are a church. And so when we think about those opposite-gendered friendships, I think 
that within the church structure, there's probably a lot of different opportunities that afford cross-gendered friendships to work, whether it's in Bible study small groups, whether it's conceptualizing of those friendships from a brother-sister dynamic, which we see a lot in Scripture, of, okay, what would it look like to treat this female as a sister in Christ, right? So when I think about a sister in Christ, right, then uh, sexual attraction, romantic feelings, etc., that that's not going to be a part of that calling or role. And so when I feel those things, when I experience those things, I rightly bring them to the Lord. Uh, but it helps me in some of those relationships to be able to have a context as well as some controls around them that I think help provide accountability, but also I think provide necessary context for us to uh, be full-fledged image bearers of the Lord. We need men and women together. God didn't just create two atoms. There's something about difference, I think, that's built into the creation of Adam and Eve uh, that's instructive for friendships and relationships. And maybe one more follow-up for that. So thinking of the role of the church in this, uh, maybe all of the different subsets that we could have in categories. Yeah. How, what is the role of the church in helping bridge that gap for singles and married couples in particular? And what are yeah. some ways that maybe you've seen that done yeah. in a, a healthy way yeah. so that it doesn't just kind of end up either siloing everybody? Right, how do, how do right. How help foster that? You know, I think, I think every church probably on the single versus married divide like has, you know, certain struggles and pitfalls that we fall into. But um, are we encouraging married couples to make as much pursuit of single people as we might ask single people to make a pursuit of married people? And that the enfolding of single people into married people's life isn't just seen as work distribution of like, hey, can you come babysit my kids or can you come help us out with this project? But are there meaningful ways that we actually create context where we learn from single people? Uh, Jesus was single and never had kids. And we would all probably take marriage advice from him and parenting advice from him, right? <laughs> and so if we think primarily of experience being embedded in, okay, I have to be married or I have to have kids to have any meaningful opportunity to provide counsel within the context of the church, I think we just miss out on the, the rich wisdom that single people, divorced people, etc. Uh, can provide. So I would say we model it from the top as leaders, as elders. Uh, we invite single people. We ask single people and married people to serve together, uh, to work in different areas of the church together. Um, but I think that that's important. I think that single people, married people, there are both unique opportunities for us to learn from each other in friendship. Hi, Sarah, I know you have a question. Anybody else who also has a question, just please go ahead and move to a microphone. So stand up. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, so within friendships, there can be any number of disagreements, and all of which there's room for a lot of relationship repair. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to when is it wise or appropriate to break fellowship? Oh, that is a good question. Yeah, when is it wise to break fellowship? You know, here's, you know, here, here's a starting point. If our friendships are primarily centered on Christ, right, what does it look like then for me, as much as is possible, to be embodying the manners, mannerisms of Christ, uh, the priorities of Christ within this friendship? And I think a lot of times if we begin to ask ourselves those questions, things that might then cause disruption in our friendship might actually order down in their level of priority, meaning, okay, you know, Alistair oftentimes tells us at Parkside, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So let's just stick with the basics, right? Everything else after that a lot of times is gravy in terms of maybe likes or interests or preferences or whatnot. 
I would also say that in friendship, if we truly model ourselves and our friendships after Christ, and the movement tends to be towards self-sacrifice, what I would be asking in friendships is, are there practical and visible ways where I can consider not my interest, but your interest above mine? And what would that look practically as it relates to opposite views or values or beliefs that, that I might not hold out to? Are there ways that, you know, oftentimes I'll tell friends, hey, I might share some of your concerns, but have arrived at different conclusions. Uh, I share some of the concerns about this topic or that topic, but uh, I think maybe we're going to come to a different conclusion on this topic or that topic. And it's not a gospel topic, but it might be one of preference. It might be secondary or even tertiary. But I would hope that counterculturally we would move more towards an others-oriented mentality in our friendship more so than, hey, you have to agree like me, be like me, do everything exactly like me. Push a little bit closer on that and then question mm-hmm. here. Uh, how does that relate to membership in the church and yeah. kind of the Lord's table? So maybe a, a relationship that say, okay, this just isn't working, but we can still be in this church together versus, right. all right, this isn't working and I'm leaving. Yes, uh, yes. Well, you know, that's that's a great question. I don't have an answer off the top of my head. That's where, again, when it... Well, no, now I'm just going to say, well, just talk to, talk to Raymond afterwards about that. Um, here, here's what I would say. Here's what I would say on that is when there are questions like that, I, I know that probably at the end of the day, I don't want to make a decision like that in isolation. I don't want to just kind of like, you know, pick up my ball and play somewhere else and just say, you know, I, I, I'm done here or in a similar way, do that with another person. So, uh, when there are questions like that in friendship where there is a level of discernment that's needed, I'm wanting to seek the counsel of my leaders, my pastors, other valued friends. Uh, I realize that at the end of the day, I'm a finite human being. I'm not omniscient. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not omnicompetent. So I have limitations, which means I want to approach all of those situations really from a posture of humility, of I want to be a learner. I, I want to think before I act. I don't want to be rash. Uh, so that would lead me probably to a lot of other question asking and a lot of counsel seeking. Hi, I'm Nate Bird. I'm from Faith Presbyterian Church. Um, my question, you talked about how uh, we didn't do a good job of passing it down to the next generation. Yes. And I think specifically about a carpool my wife runs of preteens and teens yeah. from sports where they all get in the car and they get on their phones, Yes. and there's no interaction. How do we pass that biblical friendship, the value of it, down to the next generation, specifically right. in the adolescence? Right, right. It's a, it's a great question. You know, I mean, the, the, the problem with technology is so bad that, like, you know, you go to a Chick-fil-A, and they're incentivizing you to put your phone, you know, in a little box, and if you do that for the whole time, you'll get an ice cream cone, right? I mean, that's, that's how bad I think things have gotten as it relates to uh, technology and our friendships. I would say, this is where I would say parents, so again, generationally, people who are older, like what does it look like for us to model in our own behaviors this for our children of us putting away our phones? One of the things in talking with kids in adolescence about friendships that they tell me is they say, well, my parents don't have friends, so why is it important? And I do think that that's a serious misstep. When you look generationally, I do think that there's been a generational loss of friendship. Our, our kids don't see us being hospitable. Our kids don't see us extending kindnesses to neighbors. Our, our kids see us becoming more and more insulated. We have more and more demands on our time. 
And so if we want our children and our teens to pick up that friendship is important, I would say uh, you have to model that for them. They need to see that friendship is an important value uh, for them. Uh, whether it's a, a carpool, which I, you know, I carpool for an hour every day with my two oldest kids, a lot of times it is like, hey, guys, we do need to put away our phones. Uh, it's a lot of question asking. I think kids have to be drawn out. Some kids are naturally loquacious and just want to talk your ear off, but a lot of times you really have to work with them. So, you know, I'll play a game like 20 questions with my kids. I'll say, hey, for every question you, a- you ask that I'll answer, you guys can ask me a question, and they always find that hilarious because they have all these questions that they want to know about me. And so we'll do a little bit of a game like that. Anyway, I think you can incentivize that kind of conversation, uh, I think, is a positive. So... Yes. Yes. I'm distinguishing this. If you're familiar with Wesley Hill's writings, he has a book called Sacred Friendship, and he talks about covenanted or wedded friendships. That would, that's not what I'm referring to, and that's a, a whole different category that we don't have time to talk about tonight. But I think if you look at the Ruth and Naomi narrative, and then if you look at the David and Jonathan narrative in 1 Samuel, there is a clear, I would say, speaking of what the relationship, there is a covenanting of where you go, I will go. Um, in our modern-day terms, I would say maybe the closest equivalent would be what we called in college a DTR, a defining of the relationship. <laughs> and uh, I think we historically have relegated that towards romantic relationships. I think it would do us so much good if we did that in friendships. I did that with uh, a, person, a person who is now one of my closest friends our sophomore year in college. There was an uneven set of expectations. I felt a little bit used in the relationship, Um, I served as like vice president of our student body. He was the president of our student body. We worked together a lot. I think I was wanting more from the relationship, more so than just a work relationship. And I still remember, I took him out to lunch and I said, Scott, I said, I want this to be more than what it is. And I said, and I'm hurt. I'm paraphrasing now for sake of of brevity, but I said, I'm hurt. I wish that there was more to this. And it gave him an opportunity to say, no, you're right, I, I also want more. I want this to be more than just a work relationship. I want this to be a friendship. And I think if we had not had that conversation, we probably would not be the friends that we are today. And I wish that more people today, either young or old, would have DTRs in their friendship. You know, uh, I forgot who it was. I think it was, it was Lewis, right? Lewis in Four Love says, uh, friendship starts like this. It's two people walking together, and they say, you two, I thought I was the only one, mm-hmm. right? It's this aha moment of, oh, there's, there's something that we share together in common. It's our faith. And I wish that we would be able to follow up that conversation of, you two, I thought I was the only one with, I want to be your friend. Do you want to be my friend? It seems so sentimental. It seems so childlike, but I think it's so necessary in a world where, we can miss messages. We can misunderstand actions. So 
I am all about DTRs and friendship. Yeah. I'm Daniel. Hi, Daniel. And I go to Risen Christ Fellowship. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you. I uh, appreciated your focus on uh, having other-oriented friendships. Yeah. Oh. Um, my question is kind of related to the fact that all of us have relational needs. We need yes. friends. I think even Jesus needed friends. Yeah. Um, how do you navigate or seek to fill those relational needs that we have while still trying to be others-oriented in your friendships? Yes, absolutely. I would say at first, you're absolutely right. We were created with needs. We are needy, but we're also needed people. So where does need in relationship actually facilitate growth in the friendship, growth in godliness, right? What would it look like for two friends to acknowledge need, to say, hey, I have a need for this, or I have a need for that, and for that to be partially um, met and worked out within the friendship, but that also those two friends, as they name and articulate those needs, how would it also help us to draw each other's gaze to Christ, who ultimately meets those needs and addresses those needs? Uh, so here, here's an example. Pallison talks about how the first four Beatitudes are essentially different ways of restating need, and that happy is the person who has these needs, the, the person who needs comfort, the person who needs righteousness, the person who needs peace in their life, the person who has spiritual need, who are poor in spirit. What would it look like for two friends to come together and say, hey, we have these needs. What does it look like for us to, to help each other and then at the same time help point one another towards Christ? The, the, the dynamic sometimes I think that can be damaging to friendships is when we expect an earthly friend to meet all of those needs. Um, and sometimes we don't voice that, and so we can burden the friendship with expectations that it wasn't built or designed to hold up on. And no human being, I think, can fully bear the, the weight of human need. And so I think if we understand that and realize that in friendships that we go into, I'm not trying to have this person meet every single need, which is markedly different than cultural friendships. If you read any of the literature on friendships, it is wholly predicated on friends meeting all of your needs. And if they don't meet your needs, then just kind of get rid of them. Uh, there was a, a huge article in the, in the Times of London a few years ago, and a sociologist talked about how she just gives every friend that enters into her life a score. And she begins to rank them on the ways that they meet needs. And uh, if you do something good for her, you get 10 points. If you do something mean to her, she subtracts 10 points. And she begins to keep a scorecard, right? And people thought it was great. They're like, I'm going to start doing that. But that, that's a horrible way to do a friendship, right? To be constantly, even, I mean, you know, who could keep track of that? But that's the way the world typically approaches friendships. So I would say acknowledge the need, but then also make sure that each of you are pointing to ultimately the one who's going to address those needs at the deepest level. Hi, gentlemen. Isaac Greenslade from Brandon Myers. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Hi, Isaac. Um, I have a slight follow-up to the question earlier about yeah. kind of, you know, translating generational values of friendship. I think for all of us, the millennial-plus generations yes. who have grown up in the Internet age and probably have a stifled and atrophied uh, experience of emotional intimacy and friendship, um, what are some practical, uh, even kind of almost disciplines that, that can be helpful to, to develop the muscles of relational intimacy and genuine friendship for ourselves mm -hmm. and, and also for our teens and kids you know, that we're helping to, we don't want them to have this type of yeah. experience. Yeah. Thanks, Isaac, for that question. So good to see you. Um, 
Here, here's an easy one. We tend as human beings, and in friendships especially, to ask what I would say are content questions and not process questions. So we'll say things like, hey, what did you do this weekend? Or what do you do in your line of work? And we tend to ask questions that want content and not process. So, so notice the difference of saying, hey, what did you do this weekend versus how are you doing, right? One question is after content, which is not bad, but the latter question is more after process. How did you experience this? What feelings were you going through? And I would say one of the reasons why we are struggling so much with emotional intimacy is we have lost a language of emotion. Anybody will tell you that with this generation, we are completely inept at explaining and talking about our feelings, so much so that we have uh, over 3,000 different emojis that help give voice to emotions that we're not able to articulate. There was a huge study that was done of Gen Z about their emotional intelligence, and it was shocking that Gen Zers cannot articulate emotions, but they can give emojis, right? Uh, they can talk about what feels like I'm upset or I'm happy or I'm uh, whatever it might be. I'm fascinated when I talk, especially to males in counseling, I'll ask males something like, hey, how does that make you feel? When your wife responds to you like that, when you come home from work, how does that make you feel? And I get like deer in the headlights. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know, upset? I'm like, okay, let's, it's another word maybe that pushes us a little bit deeper. And it's, it's like pulling teeth. So one of the things I think that we could do to model for our children is not that content's not important, but that process questions tend to get us a little bit deeper, right? Here again is where we take our instruction from the Lord, right? The Lord is so good at asking process questions, right? Why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Who do you say that I am, right? Jesus asked 150 questions in the Gospels with no repeats. 150. Just read Matthew all the way through John. Jesus is a master question asker. And when you begin to look at the questions that Jesus asked, what you realize is Jesus is after the heart, right? It, let, let me ask you this, right? Somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, what did you do this weekend? Or where did you take your kids? Or did Bobby have a basketball game? Or, hey, what was the score of this, right? Those questions hit different than if somebody says, hey, what is on your heart? What's on your heart? Right. If I asked you that question, at first, if you've never been asked that, it might feel, might feel very vulnerable for you to answer that. But I, I venture to guess that if there was someone consistent in your life who consistently came to you and said, hey, I want to know what is on your heart, that that would begin to plant the seeds for a very deep and abiding relationship. Because you don't just want to know what it is that I do, the activity of what I do, but you want to know who I am as a person, Right? So when my kids come home from school, we try to do as many dinners together as we can. It's not perfect, and we don't do it every night, but every night at dinner, right, I'm asking my kids three different questions. I'm saying, what was something good that happened in your life? Uh, what is something hard that happened in your life? And what was something bad that happened in your life? Tell me something good, something bad, something hard. And, and those are simple questions that just help me get to experience to what is on their hearts. So that'd be one way. Yes. Thank you, um, Shannon from Hi, City Shannon. Light Church in Center City. Um, so we've been working through your book in small groups, and one of the questions that's emerged from some of the sisters kind of reflects this heart. Can we expect God to provide friendships in the local church? Yeah. Um, 
And then one kind of related thread, I think, with respect to the substitute relationships yeah. is this question as to how do we prevent church from becoming a special interest kind of okay. friendship? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. If I don't answer it, you can follow up later. But on the first one, can we expect God to provide friendships for us in the church? I would say Yes, not by way of entitlement, like we are entitled to it, but I just think that that is the reality of what church is. It is a gathering of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and he is putting together people into a family. That's uh, Psalm 68, but it's also the social reality of how countercultural church was in uh, the early first century. There was no other institution in Greco-Roman society that allowed rich and poor, Jew or Greek, or people from other ethnic backgrounds to come together, to sit together, to share a meal together at a table. I mean, that was absolutely unheard of, that you could have men and women together, Jews and Greeks together, rich people and poor people together. So do I think it's an expectation? Maybe not so much of an expectation as much as, yes, I think it is a reality. I think the question is, will we pursue those relationships? Will we pursue and invest in those friendships? Um, on the second question of what happens if, like, maybe church becomes the special interest, um, yeah, maybe it, maybe it can be in the sense of the only friendships or relationships I have have to be within my church. Uh, I, I would say that would probably be taking a point too far in the sense of, like, well, that's really limiting and constricting who can be friends. Um, I would say, of course, you can have friends that are outside the church. You can have friends that go to different churches or friends who are uh, in other areas of the world and of the country. But I do think that institutionally, church does provide a lot of the context and touch points uh, that the world would say are necessary for friendship. I mean, you are regularly seeing one another. This is an environment where you can uh, come regardless of your age or demographic and be accepted into a fellowship. So I think church provides socially uh, uh, an ideal context in many ways uh, for friendship to flourish. Hi, I'm Colleen McCann from Windsor Baptist Church. Thank you. This thank has you. been really helpful. Oh, thank and you. Quite convicting, too. Oh. Um, as I listen, I'm uh, thinking through the different friends that I have, and I yeah. feel like I have levels of yes. friends where, yes. like, deep friendships, yes. BFFs, or friends that, you know, friends and then maybe just mm -hmm. acquaintances. Um, how many deep, close, maybe you can't, maybe yeah. it's different yeah. for different people, yes. but how many deep friendships do you think it's healthy to have? Like, yes. I would say my best friend is my husband, but yes. how many other yeah. deep, close friendships should I be pursuing? That's great. Fortunately for us, there's been some, um, some evidence-based research on this. I was talking to some of the team a little bit earlier. It's called Dunbar's Number. You can look it up. Uh, uh, Robin Dunbar is a, is a sociologist, and he says that the human being over their lifespan is typically capable of 5,000 relational connections, meaning you have memory of 5,000 different people. What Dunbar also says is that's kind of a ceiling. So, meaning if 5,101 comes into your life, somebody also has to go out. You, you have a limited finite capacity, which I would say echoes and resonates with our creative design. We don't have an infinite capacity for friends. Dunbar then goes to say, out of that 5,000, there is some concentric circles of friendships. And uh, I think that that is something that we see with Christ, right? We see an inner group of three, we see a group of 12, and then we see a, a little bit of a circle of people who are connected to him in some way, like Mary, Martha, Lazarus. I mean, they 
Jesus knows where they live. He's been over there and had meals with them. They're able to get messages to him. So there had to have been some type of tie-in connection. I would tend to say women, I find, have more emotional bandwidth to have inner ring friends than guys do. Uh, guys, I would say, maybe have capacity for one or two like really close friends. Women tend to be able to manage that. That's a generalization, so I don't want to offend anybody in saying that, but just I would say stereotypically women tend to be able to have more capacity uh, for meaningful friendships. Um, but I, I think in terms of a number, I mean, yeah, I'm hearing numbers of three to five. Like, yeah, I can have three to five really, really close friends. Uh, for other people who are maybe more introverted or who really want to dig deeper with another friend, maybe it's just one or two. Um, but outside of that, then I think you're probably moving you know, into other concentric circles. So part of life is, are there people right now mentally that you would say, they're on an outer ring and I wish they were closer to me? And so maybe part of the touch point tonight for you is, okay, what could I do to help bring them further in? There might be some of you here tonight who might say, hey, there are people in my inner ring that are actually not helping me become more like Christ and maybe they need to move a little bit further out. And so that might be a part of the mental calculus that takes place tonight as well with friendships. Hi, um, I'm Daniela from Risen Christ Fellowship. Hi, Daniela. <laughs> a lot so of Risen friends. Christ love tonight. It's wonderful. Really yes. Yes, <laughs> so we <lovely>. are. <laughs> um, so in the context of church, um, being in fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters, um, how can we guard ourselves against favoritism mm-hmm. as we're pursuing deep friendships with one another because I'm thinking of intimacy, you know, that requires a one-to-one bond connection. Um, How can we guard ourselves against favoritism and how can we bring people in while building those strong connections with our inner circle? Yes. Meaning like favoritism and like maybe like cliques of people like forming and uh, within the church. That's a, that's a great question. C.S. Lewis has an essay that a lot of people haven't read. It's not a book. It's called The Inner Ring. If you want to download it, it's probably like 10 or 12 pages. But Lewis talks about in friendships, there can be this desire that we all have of getting into the inner ring. Like, man, if I just could break into like the elder team at, you know, my church and like really get in, like it would be so much better. And, and Lewis says the problem with the inner ring is you get into the inner ring and you realize it doesn't really meet your need and you got to get into another inner ring. And I would say by extension, like that, that design of favoritism or isolation in friendship, sometimes there can be that dynamic at play as well, that there can be something about a friendship where we want exclusivity, we want to guard and protect so that there can't be anybody else that enters into it. And I would say, again, that feels less like a biblical friendship, and that seems much more uh, control-based and control-oriented. Um, when we try to exercise influence outside of a relationship, we would call that manipulation. So when we're trying to either manipulate our way into friendships or create context, artificial context where where friendships happen, I I think that's probably not going to be helpful. Maybe a part of a, a good, godly, biblical friendship is the ability to allow other people to move in and out of it and to realize that there is something good about that as well that there's something good about having other people brought into your friendships because those people then bring out different aspects of the friends that you're currently friends with. Again, Lewis in Four Loves talks about this. He says, I used to think that I really wanted to just have 100% of this friend, and so when our other mutual friend died, I was kind of excited because now I get all of him. 
But Lewis says, I actually get less of him because now in having him all to myself, right, I actually lose part of him because this friend now that we've lost that's not in our friendship circle was only able to bring something out that I wasn't able to, right? Maybe you have that experience. There's, there's one friend I can think of that my wife will say, man, when he comes around, he just really makes you laugh. I don't laugh a lot. I'm a pretty somber person. And she'll just say, he just brings out a really funny side of you, right? And there's something that when we are with him that she really enjoys his company because there's something about him that draws out a part of me that, for whatever reason, she doesn't draw out of me, right? And so if I made my friendships wholly exclusive, uh, close barrier, draw bridges up, you can't come up, I think we miss some of the richness and diversity that comes when, again, we are embedded in this wider body of a church. Um, uh, Brandon, Brandon Corner. Hi, Brandon. Morning Baptist Church. Okay. You're not from Risen Christ? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not from Risen Christ Church. I was expecting a hoot from my mouth. <laughs> yes. Wow, we. Thanks. Um, all right, so uh, my question is um, as a relatively new believer, I struggled a lot with uh, running with uh, a crowd of non believers. Mm. Um, and. Um, I would often find myself sacrificing my fellowship with my church on Sunday mornings or with uh, you know, men's Bible study and things of that sort to hang out with my non-believing friends during my non-believing mm. activities, not going to go into details. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I guess my question would be, as a, a new believer now, yeah. seeking friendship and, and seeking out uh, fellowship and friendship yes. um, with believers, is there just a, I guess my, my question would be, should believers seek out friendship with the non-believing world with the sole purpose of, of giving them the gospel? And if so, if there's a time when those unbelievers are completely stone-hearted um, for, I mean, you're trying for a year, or not even just stone-hearted, but are completely blaspheming and hating on the name of Jesus and completely turning away in a very aggressive manner, um, is there a time when we should back away and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll answer your latter question first. I would say a simple model with that of, man, when should we move away from a friendship? Let's say a friendship with an unbeliever. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of mockers. If I am in relationships where that dynamic is consistently at play, where they are mocking and scoffing, at Christ and the things of Christ where they are consistently uh, engaging in ungodly activities and behaviors to the point where they're asking for my engagement, then, then yeah, I, I don't want those people to be the closest relationships in my life, the closest friendships. Uh, that doesn't mean that they have to be completely excised out of my life. Maybe they're in the outer rings, but they're definitely not going to be in my inner core. So, Yes, I do think that there's a model we see in Scripture of separating out from those kinds of friendships. First Corinthians 15.33, you know, Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. So you know, there's a clear dynamic there where uh, people influence one another. Uh, on your earlier question, though, I just I applaud you for honesty and for vulnerability and simply saying, hey, there are times where I would rather spend more time with my unbelieving friends and yeah, I can be drawn away from just the regular gathering of people at church. And, and I would say, friend, like that's the, that's the first step. It's just a step of honesty, of just naming that reality, of saying, hey, as a young believer, sometimes old habits do die hard. And certain rhythms or patterns or things that I used to enjoy with these people, 
Um, that's going to take time to, to be worked out as I seek to put off the old way and put on Christ. That tension is going to be probably felt in a quite acute way for me. And so maybe here's some ways then that you reach out to your believing friends at church. Uh, maybe it's the honesty and vulnerability that you just shared. Uh, maybe number two, it is, will you pray for me, right? So prayer is something that should be an activity of every biblical friendship, right? It's, it's the easiest, most accessible way that, that gets at what are, what are the needs of your heart? Where are you weak? Where do you experience need? And for you to be able to, to, to ask that, and that hopefully the, the opposite question that comes your way is, well, how can I pray for you, right? And that there's something then about that cycle that begins of, will you pray for me in this way? And how can I pray for you then begins to set the seeds for a relationship where you are both needy and needed. And a relationship where you don't enter into the relationship as, well, I've only been a believer for a few weeks, so I don't have much to offer. But no, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I think that that would be at least one way that you could begin to move the needle closer towards prioritizing and investing in those kind of friendships and relationships. So thank you. Would you all help me thank Jonathan for his time?